Some of you have uh, given to help purchase uh, white canes for blind people in Africa, and I want to thank you. Uh, there was a young lady, I don't recall her name last time I was here, who gave me a little slip of paper and $6 to buy one white cane for the blind in Africa. Last time I was there, uh, I sort of made a commitment to bring back 1,000 white canes. And praise God, we will do that in November. Sitting in my office are piles of white canes. Uh, by the way, uh, white cane is really the technical name for that. I had some... Uh, uh, Afro-American people in my church in Philly uh, sort of wondering why I kept saying white cane. Uh, you know, like, was that a racial thing? Uh, it's a white cane. And really, they, uh, I, and uh, it was a simple explanation. That's what they're called. You know, if you speak French, it's white cane. That's what they call them. And there are uh, 600,000 blind people in Africa, and we're going to help 1,000 of them. In November, we'll have a big ceremony. The, uh, the mayor of the town will come, the national TV, national radio, and uh, we will preach the gospel to a lot of people. Not only when you give a white cane to a blind person who is a believer, they say it's like Jesus opening the eyes of blind Bartimaeus because that white cane is their eyes. And if you've ever been in a third world country, you wonder how anybody can walk anywhere without, uh, in a safe way. And I, I just can't imagine a blind person walking in Cameroon where the traffic and the crowds are just crazy. But for them, that is their eyes. And that will be a delight. And we will teach pastors again. Uh, you ought to send your pastor on one of these trips to Cameroon with me. <laughs> yeah. What's that? John Verdi. John Verdi. <laughs> oh, that's right. You said you'd go to the Dominican with me. <laughs> uh, it, it is a different world. We'll take John Verdi. <laughs> And you don't see my wife with me tonight. Uh, we've taken over the care of her parents. They're both 88 years old, and uh, that's really her full-time job right now. I will see her tonight at a motel in Teaneck, New Jersey. I'll meet her, and tomorrow morning we will take her dad to Columbia, New York Presbyterian to be evaluated for a transcatheter aortic valve replacement to see if they can open up the flow of blood to his body. Uh, so you, you, you can pray for that, but uh, if not, he's ready to meet the Lord. He has nothing to lose, everything to gain. And we're just trying to make sure that every day that he has left is a good day. All right, Haggai chapter 2. Can you find that? We, we can do a Bible drill. Who can get to Haggai first? 
You know your sequence of minor prophets, right? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So it's the third from the last book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are all what we call post-exilic prophets. That is, they all prophesied after Judah came out of the Babylonian captivity and came back to the land. And uh, we're looking at a text in the book of Haggai tonight, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. If you were listening, then you notice that the text talks about glory. It talks about a former glory that existed in the temple of Solomon. And then God says, I will fill this second temple, this temple of the exile, with glory. And he says that the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight is glory, our pursuit of glory. I want you to see that every one of us is pursuing glory, and I'll define that as we go on. And we fail in that pursuit, and God points us to Jesus Christ, who alone can fulfill our longing for glory. But let me give you a little background first to sort of set the stage for Haggai's message to these uh, to, to this people uh, obviously Haggai is about rebuilding the temple it's about restoring the priority of worshiping God of experiencing God's presence it's about the pursuit of glory about experiencing what true glory is. It takes place in the sixth 
century BC. If you know a little bit of Bible history, you know that in 605 BC, God sent Babylon down into the southern kingdom and began deporting people from the capital city and taking them to Babylon. God was bringing judgment on the southern kingdom. He had already brought judgment on the northern kingdom in 722 BC. He used the Assyrians to come down, destroy that kingdom, and they scattered that northern kingdom throughout the Assyrian empire. Babylon comes along, they defeat Assyria. They are now the world power. They come down into Judah, and in that 605 deportation, Daniel is taken out of the city. The three Hebrew children that end up in the fiery furnace, they're part of that deportation. And so they're taken out of the city. 598, the second major deportation takes place. This time is Ezekiel the prophet is one of those who was taken out of Jerusalem and taken into the land of Babylon. 586 is the final deportation and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The walls are destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and if you read the book of Lamentations by Jeremiah, you can sense the heartache, the brokenness to see this chosen city, this chosen place where God had said, I will put my name completely destroyed, nothing but ashes as Jeremiah walks around that city. In 538 BC, the Persian, the Medo-Persian kingdom rises. And while the king of Babylon and all of his captains and lords are having a wild, drunken orgy, the Medo-Persians invade the city without them even knowing it and destroy the kingdom of Babylon. And Cyrus becomes the leader of the kingdom that rules the world. And Cyrus had been spoken of prophetically by Isaiah over a hundred years before. God had said, I will raise up Cyrus, my servant. And Cyrus makes a decree. The people of God can go back to the land. They can rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And in 536 BC, they arrive back in the land. They begin to rebuild the walls. They begin to rebuild build the temple. But if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize that they're doing this under the oppression and opposition of the surrounding nations. They were all glad to have the Jews out of Judah and out of Jerusalem. And now that they're coming back, they're upset. And so they begin to oppress the people as they start to rebuild the city. And the people get discouraged. And so for almost 20 years, about 18 years, they stop building the walls. They stop building the temple. Instead, they build themselves fine houses. If you read Haggai 1, Haggai's first message is his indictment of God's people for not building God's temple while they're living in fine paneled houses. 
So 20 years later, Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene. And they are preaching to encourage the people of God to get back to work, to do what you what were called to do, to make the worship of Jehovah, of Yahweh, uh, the central part of your kingdom. Build the temple. And they start building. But as they build, they begin to realize that It's not what some of them had known. It doesn't have the glory associated with the Temple of Solomon. If you recall from Chronicles, especially when Solomon was building the temple, David, his father, had prepared this enormous wealth and resource. And Solomon builds an expansive, a towering and opulent temple of marble and gold. It was magnificent. It could have been one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a beautiful temple. And when it was finally being consecrated and they gathered everybody together, we read in Second Chronicles chapter 5, we read this. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests were present, who, who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph and Haman and Jaduthan, their sons and kinsmen arrayed, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with a hundred priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And what made Solomon temple most glorious was not the marble or the gold or the fine craftsmanship, the woodwork. What made it so glorious was that that Shekinah, that brilliant, gleaming, visible presence of God came and filled that temple and overwhelmed it so that they stood in awe. They were called to worship as that house was filled with glory. But as they're rebuilding the temple of the exile, the exilic temple, There's no evidence, there's no scripture that even indicates that God ever returned to that post-exilic temple. Matter of fact, the presence of God did not come into that temple until Jesus himself walked into that temple in his incarnation. The glorious presence was gone. If you read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells us how when he was in Babylon, that the Spirit of God took him, transported him from Babylon, took him all the way back to Jerusalem, and God said to Ezekiel, I want to show you what is happening 
in my temple. And so in the spirit, Ezekiel gets to look into some of the rooms of the temple where God's presence was. And in those rooms, he could see priests doing the most vile and wicked things that are imaginable. And they are worshiping idols. They have built altars to false gods within the temple of God. And as Ezekiel watches this, as he looks at this, he sees the Shekinah, that brilliant demonstration of God's presence. He sees it lift up and move to the outer gate of the temple. And then it stops, almost as if God is reluctant. He doesn't want to move, but he must move. And then the presence moves outside the city and it stops again. And then it moves up into the mountain and it is gone. It's this gradual, reluctant departure of the glory of God from the midst of his people. And as far as we know, that glory never returned to this temple. But as they're building, they long for glory. They're asking themselves, how do we experience the glory of God? The Shekinah is gone. How will we experience the glory of God in this temple? And God simply says this, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. And it seems like in the progression of theology from the Old Testament to the New, that God is preparing his people to not associate his glorious presence with location or with physical structure. But he's preparing them for the presence of the spirit in their lives. I am with you. My spirit is with you. We all have this longing for glory. What is glory? When we talk about the, the glory of God, what do we mean by the, the glory of God? It's, it's not one of his attributes. You know, his attributes are, you know, goodness and love and holiness and mercy and patience and Grace, these are attributes of God. But the glory of God is the brilliant display of all that he is. Of perfect goodness, of perfect holiness, of perfect love, of perfect mercy. And it's this brilliant, overwhelming display of of what we can't even imagine. What is perfection in all of its goodness? That's the glory of God. That's what we were created for. That's what we long for. The Hebrew word, the root meaning of the Hebrew word for glory, has the idea of something that is heavy, something that is weighty. And like gold, because it's heavy and weighty, it's therefore valuable. So glory is something that is valuable. And because it's valuable, it's desirable. 
And it's satisfying. So when the Bible talks about glory, it's talking about something that has intrinsic great value that you long for, that you desire, and that once you have it, you will be satisfied. When I say we all care about glory, what I mean by that is all of us Seek what is exceptionally valuable, meaningful, and gratifying in life. We may define it in different ways. You know, when I was a teenager, glory to me was getting high. That was glory. That was valuable, desirable, and at times sat very satisfying. So we all seek glory. We're all looking for that something in life that is meaningful to us, which we think if we could have it, it would satisfy us. We have found glory. Again, for some it may be fame. It may be drugs like me. It may be money. It's certainly money to a lot of people. It may be travel. It may be beauty. It may be that perfect physique. It may be success, maybe just sex, but everyone is looking for glory. Every human being lives with a sense of loss and a desire for something that is better than what they have, something more glorious than what they now experience. We work for that. We plan. We build. We hope. We even pray that we can grasp, grasp something, that glory that will free us of struggle, free us of pain, of sickness, of insecurity, of loneliness. We long for that and Often there are moments when we seem to have a, a grip of it. We finally have tasted something. We're experienced something where we can say life is glorious. It's good, but it's fleeting. And we end up like the writer of Ecclesiastes, where we say all is vanity, vanity of vanities. It's just grasping at the wind. It's chasing that bubble, that beautiful, attractive bubble. But once you've got it and grasp it, it's gone. We are glory seekers. There's a couple of interesting books written by the title, The Pursuit of Glory. Maybe you've heard of Bradley Wiggins, a British professional cyclist. That's the title of his book. How he, with discipline and sacrifice and work and loneliness, how he endured so that he could have the glory of a gold medal in the Olympics. And he got it. That was his pursuit of glory. And there's another book, The Pursuit of Glory, Europe, from 1648 to 1815. And it talks about the, uh, the, how the rulers of Britain and France and the Habsburg monarchy and Prussia and Russia, how they're all battling for this dynastic supremacy, the glory of being the greatest country on earth. But what's interesting about both of those books is that it really shows the unrighteous pursuit of glory and the ultimate 
inability to have lasting glory. Because in the whole pursuit of glory as a cyclist, he found that there's so much drugs and doping that is involved in, in trying to be the, the strongest, most significant country in the world. What do you have to do? You've got to kill people. You've got to shed blood in order to get the glory that you desire. Eventually, every human pursuit of self-achieved glory will result in emptiness. All is vanity. Life is monotony, the writer of Ecclesiastes said. We seek glory. It's part of our DNA. It's existed in your soul since you were created. When God put Adam and Eve in that garden, he put within them a desire for glory that could only be satisfied by the presence of God in that garden as he came to walk with them and talk with them. God created us for glory, but a glory that can only be satisfied by a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and Satan knows that's why we're created for glory for God's glory and that's why he works hard to deceive us to put before our eyes alternate pursuits of glory to blind us as Paul says how the God of this world blinds the eyes of those who believe not, lest they see the light of the gospel of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan does not want you to be captured by the glory of God in the gospel because he knows that will bring you to worship, to worship his enemy, Jesus Christ. So here we are in the 6th century B.C. By the way, that was the introduction. Now I'm going to get to the message. The good news is the introduction is about half of the message, so you're okay. But I want us to think tonight from this text what we can learn about our pursuit of glory. The things that we need to face, the realities we need to face in our own lives if we will enjoy and experience the glorious presence of God. The first thing we need to face is this. We need to face our everyday failure, our everyday inability to achieve glory by our own efforts. We need to face our everyday failure, our everyday inability to achieve glory by our own efforts. You know, we have the greatest ability to lie to ourselves and, and, and to give pep talk to ourselves. You know, every time we work hard to, to get what we want and we have it and we taste a little bit of glory and then it's gone. You know, you got the house, you got the car, you got the job, you got the family, you got the husband, you got the wife, you, you, you got the, the right hospital, the right doctor, the right. The, the moment you, you taste it, you feel like you've got it. And then like all human glory, it leaves 
but you tell yourself you can find it on your own again, that there is a way that you can achieve glory. But if we would just listen to our own hearts and listen to the Spirit of God as he works in our hearts, we would wake up and say, I am incapable of achieving a glory that is so majestic that it will not only capture my attention and so infinite that it will keep my attention for all eternity. I cannot find that apart from a, apart from a relationship with God. Again, Haggai 2 verses 1 through 3. As they're building the temple and the Haggai comes on the scene. Speak to Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua. And say to them, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? If we go back to the book of Ezra. Ezra gives us a picture into the emotional responses of the people as they see the shape of the temple beginning to take place. As some of you know, back in November, the Friday after Thanksgiving, my son and his family woke up to a house that was on fire. And they made it out, but they watched at 3 o'clock in the morning in 5-degree weather. They watched their house, which they had only lived in for two weeks, burn to the ground. And everything they own burned to the ground. Now I can say, say, say to my son today, what do you need? What do you want for your birthday? He said, Dad, you, Dad, you can get me anything because I don't own anything. It's all destroyed. I don't have a tool. All my tools are gone. Everything's gone. My clothes are gone. My shoes are gone. Makes it easy to buy birthday and Christmas gifts. But now his house is being rebuilt. And he has a, a live camera where... From wherever he is in the world, he can watch the foundation being laid, the walls going up, the roof going on, it being enclosed. And he has another camera that every 10 seconds takes a picture. And at the end of the day, he will put up the whole day's work in like one minute in this rapid succession of photos. And as he watches it, he's excited because this house will actually be bigger and better. They've designed it. It will be what they want. And so for him, in comparison, it is joy. But as they watch this house being built, Ezra says, Many of the priests and Levites and heads of father ha father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, and they had to be old if you think about it, 
If you were 10 years old when the deportation took place in 605 BC, then you were now 85 years old. Anyone who was born during the captivity, those 70 years, they had never seen the first temple. It was gone. So it's only old people that have this memory. And he says the old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. They wept with a loud voice. But Ezra says there were many who were shouting with joy. But you know, the ones who were shouting with joy had never seen the temple of Solomon. It was the first temple they saw. They had nothing to compare it to, and it was a rightful joy. But they had never seen a temple that was physically built like Solomon's was, nor a temple in which God's glorious presence had entered. Now, these old men wept. They knew on one hand it would never physically compare to the temple of Solomon, even though later King Herod would do his best to make it a magnificent temple. (coughs) But when they were given the permission to build the temple, they were limited to its size. Its size was smaller than the Temple of Solomon. But even if they could have, if they had had all of the gold and silver and the, 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 the fine wood and the craftsmanship and the marble, and even if they could have built this temple as glorious as Solomon's temple, there's one thing they could never do. They could never bring back that glorious presence of God. They could create glory, but always a fading glory. The seven wonders of the world are gone. Solomon's temple is gone. And every human glory, everything that any human finds his soulless and his rest in, eventually will be gone. But you know, this is God's providence in his people's lives. He's causing this. He's allowing this emptiness, this, these tears coming down the face, this brokenness. He's allowing this because he wants them to be ripped away from thinking that glory is tied to some physical place that is ultimately destined for destruction. He wants them to long for greater glory. And if that's where you are tonight, you're hungry, you're longing, you're empty, you're unhappy. Praise God for that. Because it's not because you're experiencing the presence of God in some unique and wonderful way. It's because you've been pursuing glories that are lesser glories and they've left you dissatisfied as God intended so that you will long for the greater glory of God. 
Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? But this is God's providence, sort of contrary to the way we like to see life. We like hero stories, I do. I like to see the good guy win. I like to see people live happily ever after. We like that sort of thing. But here we have God's people who have been rebuked. They're repenting. They're doing what they're called to do. They're beginning to finish the task. And yet they're left with dissatisfaction. And that's God's gift to me. To cause me to long for something more. There is nothing in this world that can come by human accomplishment, human achievement that will ever bring you the lasting satisfaction for which your soul longs. The most beautiful painting. You always move on. The most exquisite meal. The most intriguing book, the most lavish vacation, the most gratifying relationship, the happiest marriage, the most striking church structure. It doesn't matter what it is. None of those things can satisfy the longing of your soul for a glory that is so majestic and so infinite that it can not only capture your, your desire, but it can satisfy it, not just for time. You're going to be with God for a long, long time in eternity, and you will never say, I've seen enough of him in eternity. The longing for something more that's satisfying is a longing that only the presence of God can fill. I love the way A.W. Tozer puts it. He said, if God can be understood and comprehended by any of our human means, then I cannot worship him. Listen to that again. If God can be understood and comprehended by any of our human means, then A.W. Tozer says, I cannot worship him. One thing is sure. I will never bend my knee and say, holy, 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 to that which I've been able to decipher and figure out in my own mind. Or to that which I've been able to build with my own hands. That which I can explain will never bring to me the, bring me to the place of awe. Nor that which I can accomplish. It can never fill me with astonishment or wonder or admiration. I need a God whose glory is majestic enough to capture me. And infinite enough to keep me forever and ever. And God lets us see that glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The 
second lesson we learn, and we've already talked about this, but let me just say a word about it, is we all need to realize that it's only the promise of his presence that is the assurance of real glory. Be strong, the prophet says. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Work. Don't be afraid. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. That visible, brilliant display of God's glory, the Shekinah, is not coming back to this temple. But I am with you. And my spirit remains in you. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't God always with his people? And if so, why do not do I not experience this glory, this satisfying glory? Because that's a reality of all of our lives at times. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you. And yet, we can pursue lesser glories. Why is it that I don't experience this magnificent, satisfying presence of God? Well, I like the way Jesus put it in John 14. In verse 21 through 24, listen to what he said. He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. There's a difference between the omnipresence, all presence of God. And the enjoyment, the experience of that presence. We know that in human terms. I know that. I grew up in a large family. There were five boys. Later, there were six boys. My youngest brother is 20 years younger than me. But uh, when the five of us were growing up, we were very close in age. My mom had seven kids in 10 years and three miscarriages in between. So figure that out. But when we were growing up, we were all teenagers at the same time. And that's good in the city. You have your own little gang. Nobody messes with you. <laughs> But I had a dad who uh, worked hard to provide for his family, worked three jobs. He was a, back then they called them prison guards. Today he'd be a correctional officer. But he was a prison guard. And uh, he drove a school bus. And he had a window cleaning business on his days off. And so we all learned how to clean windows and climb ladders. You know, we did that from the time we were 12 or 13. But he also taught us how to play ball. 
And I can remember when he would drive the school bus that we were on and take us to school and we would get there early. He would take us to the field out back. And he would teach us how to throw a ball, how to catch a ball, how to hit a ball. And those were joyous times with my father. He was present and I enjoyed his presence. But then as a later teen, I don't know how many times he had to come to the police station to bring me home. And I did not enjoy his presence. So we want more than just presence. We want presence which is satisfying, which is showing us glory, which is, is giving us enjoyment. This is what we want in the presence. I don't want to just know that he's with me. I want to experience the presence of God. I want to have joy in the presence of God. I want in those good times in life to be aware that the greatest glory I have is in the presence of God so that I'm not caught away in idolatry by the good times of life. And in those tough times of life, I want to be aware of the glorious presence of God because I don't want those tough times to make me bitter and seek other lesser glories. We enjoy the manifestation of his presence when we love him and worship him. And of course, the fruit of that is we pursue obedience. There's no, in Jesus' mind, there's no contradiction between love and obedience but he always keeps them in their proper place you can't say well I'm doing all the right things why don't I experience the glory of God because you have obedience but it's not obedience that's rooted in worship in love if you love me And out of that have the obedience that flows out of love. My father and I will will make ourselves known to you. We will manifest ourselves to you. Because you worship me. You love me. We can't negotiate with God how we're going to get glory. We can't be on that performance track which says, you know, I'm becoming a better person and I'm deserving of more things. God, why aren't you showing yourself to me? And God's saying, I just want you to love me supremely. To know who I am and what I've done for you in Christ. And I want you to love me supremely. And out of that love, let that worship and obedience flow. And when you are loving me supremely, then, my, then we will make ourselves known to you. Because the enjoyment of his presence is always grace. It's always grace. 
and I can depend on the enjoyment of his presence always because his grace is unlimited. If I'm loving him simply because of his grace, then I know that I can experience his presence. But if I think that my human effort, my achievement has something to do with what I should be getting from God, it will always be limited because my human achievement is always limited and always fragile. I don't know about you, but I know I have a problem at times that I seek glory that's tangible, that's immediate, that's satisfying for the moment. Rather than seeking glory in the presence of God. You know, how many times have we sat down and thought, man, if, if I just had a little bit more of this, Amen. I'd be happy. And God's there saying, but you have all of me, magnificent glory, infinite glory. But as the songwriter wrote, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, watch your heart. Beware lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to departing from God. Just this week, I read a sad story. I won't mention a name, but a very well-known pastor. Written books that many of you have probably read. Pastored a church of thousands. Gospel-centered, reformed. I mean, just as straight as could be. And almost at the same moment like it was planned, he and his wife on Instagram announced that they are splitting up. They are no longer together. And then a couple days later, he comes out announcing that he does not believe he is a Christian anymore and he is going to start a blog as to why he does not believe that Christianity is credible. But I understand what's going on. My little tweet to that was that someone's inability to find happiness in marriage or someone's inability because of a lack of faith to enjoy the presence of the Lord is not evidence against Christianity. There are thousands of testimonies otherwise. And even if there weren't, even if all of us failed in having faith and persistent faith, it still would not change the fact that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. That doesn't change. And my experience, good or bad, is not the supreme evidence for the credibility of Christianity. I pray for him. 
that God will bring them to repentance. I pray for all of those people that he ministered to all these years that they will understand it was not this pastor who was the most important person in their journey in Christianity. But it was always Jesus Christ. And he doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John Davis is not. He is subject to change. My dad only had a sixth grade education, but he was very wise spiritually. And he would always warn me as a young Christian, don't look at other people. The best or the worst of Christians, don't look at them. Don't let that measure how you feel about Christianity. Keep looking to Jesus Christ. He's your savior. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again. He's coming for you. Look to Jesus Christ. The third point of our text is this, and I'll close with this. We should all live with an expectation of an ultimate display of the magnificent, infinite glory of God. God tells these people who are looking at a temple that's not measuring up to what they had expected. And he says, I'm going to shake the nations. And I'm going to shake heavens and earth. And I'm going to fill this house with Glory. And he did that. We know in some sort of temporal way, God gave them a taste of his power to add to even the physical glory of that temple. Because you go back to Ezra and you find out that God stirred up the neighboring nations, those that were in opposition to them. And he turned their hearts that they were giving their gold and giving their silver and they were providing provisions. So God, by his power, began to bring more physical glory to that temple. But there's a better stage to that. One day Jesus walks into this temple. And he says, I'm going to destroy this temple, but in three days... I will raise it up. And I want you to know, he said, that something greater than the temple is here. That's me. Because I am all that the Old Testament temple anticipated. And now if you're in Christ, Ephesians says you're 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 part of this holy temple. You're being built up into this holy temple. I mean, God is literally bringing the nations of the world into the temple of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're already beginning to taste that majestic and infinite glory of God. And if, if only we could 
be diligent in faith and persistent in faith and never waver from faith. We would always be satisfied in Jesus Christ. We would always be at rest in him. And so we're fighting every day to keep believing, to believe the promises of God. But every one of us fails. We taste his glory, but we still pursue other glories at time. But we're still longing as we've tasted his glory. We're longing for that new heaven, that new earth in which no temple is needed because God himself is the temple. John says in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And that's what we long for, that ultimate display of this magnificent glory of God that captures our desire and that infinite glory of God that can keep us satisfied forever and ever. And we can only see that in the face of Jesus Christ. And once you've come to him, and through his word and the work of his spirit, 2 Corinthians 3 says that we, in this glass of the word of God, we are beholding his glory and being satisfied. My prayer every day for myself, and hopefully you'll make this your prayer is God, don't let me be satisfied with lesser glories that will ultimately leave me empty. But show me your glory. Satisfy me with your presence. Let's pray together, shall we? And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, it may be this afternoon that God is speaking to your heart really probing deeply into your heart because of that struggle that's going on in your soul, that pursuit of lesser glories that's leaving you dissatisfied in life. It may not be evil that you're seeking glory in. It may be a good thing, but it's still not being satisfied in your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Or it may be blatant evil that you think if you can do this, you can find this satisfaction. Tonight, why not repent? Why not look to the God who gave his son to save you and tell him, I want to be satisfied with your glory. Show me your glory. I want to love you and worship you and experience you every day of my life so that I don't go after lesser glories. Would you say tonight that God has been speaking to my heart tonight? I need to do some repenting and turning back to my Savior, and I want you to pray for me. Could I pray for you tonight? Just quietly slip your hand up where you are and say, yes, God's speaking to my heart. Yes, 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 yes. Amen. Father, your glory is so magnificent. 
that it will capture our desires and our affections. And your glory is so infinite that it will never run out of ability to satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. Thank you for Jesus Christ who died for our rebellion and our sin and who rose again to give us new life, to give us your spirit so that we could experience your presence. God, help us to long more for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.